five of the Therapy Ideas podcast, a series of conversations with speech and language therapists from around the world. I'm Rhiannon Walton, and I'm talking to Fatima Unescu about working in private practice in Singapore, life as a bilingual therapist, and the difficulties with the medical model. everyone. I'd like to welcome Fatima Unesco to the podcast. So Fatima and I worked together in East London and then I moved to West London and she moved to Singapore. So welcome to the podcast, Fatima. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Thank you for joining me. Uh, Really excited to talk with you today about how things work over there in Singapore. Um, So here we, as you know, are... um, Speech therapists are often in schools or in health or across both. Um, Can you tell us how the speech therapy services are organised over there in Singapore? Um, At the moment, there's actually quite a range of providers in Singapore and they range anywhere from government and private hospitals. So you could be based um, in a hospital, both with uh, pediatrics and with adults. Yeah, You can be in private clinics. Um, I would guess those are mostly for pediatrics, at least the ones I know. Um, you can work for special education needs schools um, and you can work for um, certain service providers such as as far as I'm aware, the Dyslexia Association of Singapore, I think also provides. Okay. Um, and also private SLTs, which is very, very common here. Um, I think, obviously, I think when you work for um, special needs schools, you, you I, don't, I think it's very hard to say whether you fall under the Ministry of Health or Ministry of Education here because things don't really work that way. Okay. It's private, unless you work for a government hospital, um, and in which case you would be under the Ministry of Health. I think everywhere else you just work, you're, you're employed privately. So it doesn't really apply um, as it does in the UK, I would say. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty much, those are really the the, the services that provide speech therapy. Um, I guess in terms of organisation, I think if, if, if obviously if I compare it with how things are in the UK or used to be, at least when I was there, because <laughs> um, <laughs> I know things are a little bit different now, um, there's, I, th- I guess the pros of having um, things like this, there's quite a wide range of, um, uh, you know, choices. Yep. People can really access different types of services with a wide range of prices. Um, and I guess you have very little, um, you know, waiting lists so that you don't have huge waiting lists because there's, um, I mean, if you go to a government hospital and they tell you that you have to wait a year yep. or six you are you know you can access it if you if you can afford it you can you can access it somewhere else yeah so I guess really you know relieves a little bit the the pressure in terms of waiting I guess um, the cons of having a you know so so much offer as well and of not having really a centralized way of um, you know organizing everything is that there's very little liaison between professionals okay from the services I guess um it's hard to say why that is it probably might be because of a lack of mdt culture you know services are so used to working independently and on a competition basis i guess if we're talking about the private sector but they don't necessarily share information i guess there's also i mean it's it's getting much better now people are coming over and doing a lot of training but you know it's still baby steps right at the beginning yeah so i think there's not that much knowledge about 
uh, you know, which services to access. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about schools, for example, mainstream schools. Um, they don't, they tend not to accept children with additional needs. So there's not much of an inclusion culture here. So teachers will not be aware. Okay. That probably, you know, uh, yeah, impacts on, on, on that low level of MDT, you know, liaison, I guess. Um, yeah, there's also, <laughs> I mean, I would say the vast majority of services are private okay. as well. Yeah. And are they are they so um I guess here yeah we have a, a much smaller amount of private therapy being kind of provided and offered um how how is the perception of of speech and language therapy different um it's, it's see that that is such a huge question actually <laughs> um I think from I think what's important to understand, and, I, and it took me a while to get my head around it, is that our profession is not regulated at all. Okay, it's just in the process of being regulated. So there was no, um, you know, there was no, uh, uh, there was nothing in the government regulating our profession. So anyone could, you need, you, you really claim or offer anything. Oh my goodness! Okay, it's it's not. It's not so much for us because when you come from abroad, you sort of have to prove your qualifications in order for you to be able to work. Yeah. So uh, you can't claim that you're a speech therapist if you're not a speech therapist because you have to prove it. But if you are a local, you don't have to do so because you don't obviously don't have you don't need a visa. Okay. So I've heard crazy things <laughs> about people claiming to be one thing or another of curing X or Y. So and it's really not that uncommon. Okay. It's a little bit, uh, but now it's in the process of being regulated, and and I guess you know as services were extremely limited a few years back. So when compared to countries such as the UK, if if we just say that, and it's, I I would still say probably that not many people know who we are and what we do. Okay. Although, definitely, I think um, obviously, and it will improve with the government's efforts to regulate. Um, I guess the in terms of. Um, in, in let me just think how I would explain this. I think also this, you know, disability in in Singapore, it's not seen in a very positive nor inclusive way. I would say generally, I think it's hard to say why that is. It's probably a combination of factors, obviously, and um, and me talking about them probably, you know, you, you could say so much about this, but I think it's probably um, a simple lack of awareness of what to expect in terms of communication. Um, which services to access, um, and also cultural factors. You know, it's, it, I guess, they related to how comfortable you are in a society to recognize that you have a child with disability, right? So this has a huge impact on how our services are perceived. Um, so if people are not aware of who we are and what we do, they might not understand as well what the, the importance of communication is, or they might mistrust us when approached, or they might refuse to access the service. Um, on the other hand, um, when you know people who do know who do know who we are and access our services, can also perceive as anything from being the person who's going to help their child improve their condition, you know, from someone who's going to help their child complete their school homework, or a child diagnosis which will you know prevent them from accessing. A, a particular subject at school that is pulling their grades down. So I, I've seen I've seen everything. <laughs> so so you you can be anything as 
uh, actually, actually a speech language therapist, maybe a little bit of a glorified nanny, or you could be put in a position where you really feel like you're not the right profession, the professional to make any call, you know, in that particular moment. Um, I think I, I, I don't think I've ever fully understood what the word private in private practice means until I, you know, until I came here. It's, it's, um, I, I, I think when you are dealing um, with a, a, a model that obviously places a lot of importance, importance in the financial side of things, um, it complicates a little bit. So um, I, I think it might, it might at times skew the expectations that people have of us. Um, it's, I think the, because we also have a very much of a medical model here, I think, okay. you know, a lot of parents um, may expect us to cure their child. And, um, and so the expectations of, of what we can do and what, or, or, and the expectations of what we can do and sorry, the difference between what we can do and what they expect us to do might be wildly different, you know, because it's such a, a much, it's, it's very much a medical model. Um, it's, 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 it, it doesn't really help. So if people don't really know what we do and expect us to do something, um, I, it's sometimes you don't build the best, um, report or the dynamics can become a little bit strange between the, the, the SLT, you know, and the parents. Yeah, absolutely. And if they, if they have unrealistic expectations, you're never going to satisfy them, are you? So, um, I mean, it, it really, you know, it comes very often with a medical model. What I, what I've seen is that it comes very often with an almost total lack of parental involvement okay. in which the responsibility towards the client's, um, I guess, potential progress, it, it almost completely lies with a health professional, right? So obviously then with a, with a lack of understanding relating to, to, you know, to what communication is and the way it can be affected just magnifies these really strange dynamics. Um, so it doesn't happen all the time, um, but I think it happens very often here, you know? It really does. It happens very, very often here, um, and and you can see that as well in terms of how our uh, how our, our profession is perceived by other professionals as well. And if, for example, if I, again, if I give you the the um, the example of teachers, so it's not very uncommon for uh, uh, SLTs to be denied entry in schools. It's actually not uncommon. It happens all the time. Um, and when we do go to schools who are happy to 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 have us they very often expect us to just go and have a session, like a one-to-one session with the child. So without any liaison with the teacher. Again, it's a, it's it's probably a bit of a lack of this MDT um, awareness, in, you know, in which they, they everyone would understand their role and the importance of communicating and optimizing, you know, each other's goals. Yeah. And because together, obviously, you know, it would be more, you know, you would work in a more holistic way, it would probably benefit the child, but this is still very much a rare thing. It's, 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 it's getting there, yeah. but it's still, um, yeah, it's a little bit rare, Yeah, I guess. And so perhaps um, it's, it sounds like it's a bit like maybe um, our services were like 15 years ago where people expected us just to go into schools and wave our magic wands and fix the children without any liaison. Um, sounds quite, quite similar. I guess you also have that from quite a lot of parents as well. And it's, you know, it's just, it, is, it obviously has to do with, um, with just not really understanding what it is needed in order to to help a child progress, you know, to where everyone has to be involved. 
Um, so this will hopefully change. But it's I think when you work um, privately, again, when the parent is paying you directly, mm -hmm. paying a clinic director directly, I, I've noticed that that changes a little bit. And that's just my perception from working, obviously, in the NHS where um, we didn't deal at all with money directly. You know, and working in a in a clinic which is very much private. Yeah, yeah. So I think it just complicates a little thing. It's almost like you are expected to do something because you're being paid yeah. directly. So obviously not all the cases, but it does happen a little bit, and it's so it's a mix of the medical model, the fact that it's private, a, a bit of lack of awareness. So it's I think it's a, a, yeah a mix of things. Okay. Great. Um, and so you've had experience over there in Singapore of both working in a private practice and now you're in schools. Um, are there different rewards and challenges in, in schools? T tell us about, about those. The clinic to the, to the school. Mm. Well, I guess, for example, the most challenging thing that I had that, that I that I that, that I went through, I guess, when working here was just um, working in different service delivery, you know, service delivery modules. So I was used to working in NHS, where you know it's it's a huge organization, and despite all the challenges inherent to such a huge organization, you know, and the impact it has, um, I, I I guess we we really had the best intentions towards the clients and their families. You know, and it was a framework that tried to rely on evidence-based research, right? So when you start seeing um, when you start seeing a, a health service as a business, so not only to pay salaries but also to make money, um, the risk of not being as precious um, about what is shown to be effective and ethical is significantly higher. You know, so suddenly, for example, suddenly um, a simple step, let's say you want to give a child a break um, in therapy, you know, let, let's let's say that it's for generalization pur purposes or maybe to even give um, a child a break because they had intensive therapy and they're not as motivated or maybe to change, just change therapists in order to increase a little bit more uh, the motivation. So this simple step might be hotly contested by management, right? Because um, obviously the things that you need to take into consideration, it's that how much, a, a lot of times this is what happens, is how much a loss of a client would cost the business, right? And also you may hear like, oh, but you don't have a huge, you don't have a waiting list, so you, there's no reason for you to give um, a break, right? Yeah. So very often you're often encouraged to offer intensive therapy for all sorts of communication difficulties and levels of severity. Uh, so if you, combine this with a medical approach, um, you know, and this really may influence any parental attitude and expectations. And you won't end up, often end up with a child you see every day for, you know, year in, year out, with very little progress. Um, and the parents may, may not be involved at all in the therapeutic process. So I think, you know, it, it's really, an, probably an arguably is a really great case for you to really evaluate your duty of care towards a, a patient, right? So I think I found this the most challenging. Yeah. Um, the feeling that I, I wasn't always able to be entirely free um, to use my professional judgment, you know, in an ethical and effective way. Um, I think what I, and this was more prominent in the, in the, in the clinic, uh, at school, um, I mean, at least particularly where I am, you are, I, I think people trust you more as a professional. 
they they really do so if you if you provide you know an absolutely clear rationale you know you you have evidence-based practice you 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 really try to do what's right you know ethically and in an effective way um you're given much more in i would say freedom to to act on what you think it's it's appropriate for the child um but i i guess it really depends where you work. I mean, I know things are really changing. There's a, gr a lot of great people really trying to, you know, to push for a much more uh, ethical and effective way of working. So it, it's, 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 you can't really say that it's all, you know, the same thing. You know, people just work very differently, I guess, everywhere. But um, I think this is what I found more challenging. At school, at school, for example, what I like the most, but I actually, mm, both at school and the clinic, I think what I like the most in Singapore, and that is a, a, a huge um, uh, positive thing uh, when compared to the UK, is that um, here in, in, in Singapore, you really have to treat whoever comes through your door, you know, which you didn't really have, you don't really have in the UK. In the UK, I guess you specialize very early on. Yeah. I think this culture of specialization where you know, you either go into phonology or or AST or language or anything, this fluency. Here, um, you very much really, you, you really need to see whoever comes <laughs> through the door. And I really love that. I mean, I was in a generalist team back in the UK, as you know. <laughs> so, but, I, but I worked in only zero to five, right? So we all, all had to see whoever came through the door pretty much. And then we would see them for a little while and then we would um, obviously um, send them to any of the specialist teams, but we would still see them for a little while. But I guess um, here I, I see any any child from 17 months to eight years to 17 years, <laughs> you know, with a range of, of, of difficulties. I mean, I never had the opportunity, for example, to do this fluency back in the UK and I had an opportunity to do it here, which was lovely. So... Um, yeah, so I guess that that is really the positive, the positive thing. You it keeps you on your toes. You know, you really have to always. You, you feel like you you need to learn constantly, and I, I always think this is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and um, that that really um, leads me on to my my next question because I've been thinking about how people um, learn in different ways and how um, continuing professional development is kind of set up here and how perhaps it's changing with so many pressures on funding and it's really quite difficult sometimes to get approval to go on courses. Um, can you tell us about how CPD works over there and how how you find you learn best? Mm, I think, you know, again, I think the recent steps made in order to regulate a profession will I think that it will hopefully do wonders for CPD. It will really contribute um, towards CPD. I think at the moment the situation is actually quite dire, in the sense in the sense that you're generally expected to pay for everything yourself. Okay. You know, you pay it for it yourself. You are still dependent on getting permission to miss work in order to do it. So a lot of the courses, for example, are done during the week. And uh, if if your boss doesn't let you go, you, you, actually there's nothing you can do. You know, um, you they might. I mean, on when they do let you go, it, you have to take. Um, obviously, you have to use your holiday days to do it. So there's 
very, I, I, I would say there are very few places who, um, which will give you a few days a year in order for you to use for professional development. I, I, I don't know of anyone who does it, actually. So if I want to go on a course, I need to do it on my free time, either on holidays or on the weekends, actually, in my case, I actually cannot take holidays, even if I want to, in, you know, during term time, because I work in a school. So I, I'm actually quite restricted, but it's only fair, obviously, because we have quite a lot of holidays. But, you know, if you really want to go on a course, you're, yeah, you might not be able to. Um, I think there's still quite a lot of things you can do, though. I mean, when I, when I came to work at the clinic, um, I was the senior therapist for my team so I um I had to give quite a lot of supervision but because you know I tried to um create um a framework for CPD uh and it was really difficult because for you to do something like that you need to obviously take some hours during the week in order to do so in order to provide supervision in order to you know to do self-reflection learn and if uh, you know it's in in my case and I've heard this um, from other people as well, it's 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 going to be tough for um, management to give you that those hours because basically that you know those hours will not bring money to the company. Yeah. Um, so I know it sounds really negative, and I and now it's it will really really change. Uh, it's already changing. I mean, the government is making sure of that, but it's still it's still very shaky. It's really in the beginning. So I guess what what I what I had to do was, um, you know, just create. So we just talked to my colleagues and we went through a few steps in order to ensure that we would have the best framework possible under the circumstances circumstances we were in. So we sort of like created um, informal, um, you know, informal structures for peer supervision. Um, we also had, um, we would meet to share information about, you know, any courses that we, we had attended in the past. Um, and, but I guess the most important thing, and, and this is what, this is what shocked me, I guess, the most, I think what I've seen, and obviously I'm not generalizing, this was just my, my particular experience is that there was very much a culture of, um, you know, not asking. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what that is it's probably because you work so independently you know you book solidly all day pretty much mm -hmm. so you see children from morning to evening you know you work very independently you don't really work with other people and um, so and you work in a framework where you are expected to learn by yourself right and just get on with it so you see anyone who comes through your door and you just get on with it and i, I and i think what happens is that you may you 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 may end up not only being afraid to ask for help, you know, because you are expected to know it and to just get on with it, but I think it might also um, make you um, a little bit defensive when you are offered help, you know, because again, you are you are working on your own so so often that it's you know you don't want people to perceive you as not being able to do your work, and um, and this is really not a good place to be if you're a clinician. It really is not a good place to be. I mean, it's not it's not good for you. It's not good for your, for the clients or their families, right? Yeah. So I think I think if I had if I have to choose probably or identify my my most important role so far since I came to Singapore, I think it was this. It was to help you know my colleagues understand that it's it's more than okay to ask for help in in, in fact it should be mandatory if you have tried to work it out and you still come up you know came up short so and 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 that is as important as also uh, as passing it on to the to to their fellow colleagues as well it's it's just that it should be safe to ask for help 
Yeah. You know, it's sort of do it the way you would want to be done by almost, right? Um, I mean, obviously, I was very lucky in the UK because we had a very good structure uh, of supervision of CPD. I mean, I um, obviously, you actually know who she is, but I, I, I say I have the most amazing line manager in the world. <laughs> I, I did. And I, and I actually sincerely, I, I, I sincerely think that I owe her everything as I, you know, that I am as an SLT. So I guess this is the least I can do to honor her as professionally and as a mentor, you know. And I think it's really, really important. Um, and I, this is what I would like to see change a bit more in Singapore. There's really uh, very little CPD. There is um, there, there, the culture of supervision, of, of helping your colleagues uh, and helping yourself as well by, by asking for help. You know, I, it doesn't, re- it's not really there yet. Yeah. And that's, that's quite scary, isn't it? And I also think that... Um, at the moment, because the the job situation for newly qualified therapists over here in the UK is is not great, that I've heard um, informally via Twitter and things that lots of people have been coming out to work in Singapore. So if those people have never experienced what you experienced over here, those structures of supervision, it's quite scary to think of them sort of thinking over there by themselves and learning that it's not okay to ask for help and not really having anybody to to direct their questions to. It's, it's quite worrying. Super, super worrying. And I know quite a lot of people in that position, actually. Um, again, I think it's changing, really. I mean, I mean, we have to, we do have to take into consideration that, you know, it's it's a new profession here. It's It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have uh, the, the same amount of years behind it all like we have in the UK. Well, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're, they will probably have to, you know, uh, it will be a trial and error type of thing. And we need to to let Singapore uh, grow you know, and, just, and be allowed to make these mistakes. Yeah. Because obviously it goes through them. And it's it's really important to stress just how much people are working towards, you know, a much safer way of practicing, of, of helping families, of, of, of providing their professionals with better, you know, better skills. So it's really important to stress that, but it's it is a little bit scary, I guess, if you come from a, a very much established team, and you don't see those things that you really easily take for granted. Yeah, it's it's actually, you know, when when you go back to the UK, and I know things are really changing, but you really think, oh my goodness, I was so lucky. I was, <laughs> you know, because it's only when you come to a place and you don't have that that you actually really appreciate. Yeah, you really do. I mean, I always did when I was in the UK because it, it was fantastic what I had, but you really do appreciate it when you don't have it. And you, you know, it, I think especially in the health professions, I, this should be, I guess, important in all sorts of areas, walks of life. But I think I would say especially in the in the in our professions, it's really really important to 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 you know to help one another and to not be afraid of asking, because that's how you learn. Yeah, you know, really how you learn, how you improve. And to be able to pass on that knowledge to someone else, to your colleague, is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And and talking about passing on that that knowledge, um, can you tell us about how how your bilingualism has has affected your work over there? Because um, let me just tell tell the listeners. So you're you're Portuguese, and you trained as a speech therapist um, here in London, and you worked here for a, a while, and now you're over there. So how is that multicultural bilingualism impacting on your work over there? Uh, I think 
it probably does quite a lot. I don't know, maybe in an informal way. Um, or oh, I don't know if it will be more formal and informal. I guess probably both. It definitely has to do with, um, I guess, a natural empathy towards clients who have to function in two languages. Um, I have a lot of empathy <laughs> towards Although I probably actually don't speak Portuguese that often on my day-to-day. -day. You know, it, it, yeah, I don't really do that in my day-to-day -day life, I guess, because I'm also married to um, a man who doesn't speak Portuguese, <laughs> you know. So I, um, yeah, but I do know what it is to function in two languages. This, and I guess I'm, I'm obviously able to offer the parents some reassurance about their child's ability to learn more than one language and the benefits as well. Uh, but I think the most important thing, I think we're learning more and more. I mean, I'm fascinated by this area, as I'm sure you remember. <laughs> so I love but I think we're learning more and more about the process of bilingual, multilingual language acquisition, right? And we're definitely now more equipped to give appropriate feedback and support to the parents. That's that's for sure. However, it's it's just it's one of those areas where you feel that there is still so much to learn, you know. And I I mean I'm I'm I think what I found out now I think in the beginning I was much more interested in the linguistic side of things, you know. And but I, I find myself now um, being much more interested in the in the social impact of actually of being in a multilingual environment and how parents and their children cope with this, because I mean if you, if you think about it, like traditionally when we thought about bilingualism, we always thought about these um, very simple two language situations where you'd have you know two parents speaking the same language with a child and living in a different country or a parent speaking one language, but living in the country of the other parent. You know, those were the very straightforward situations, right? Yeah. That's that's really not the case anymore. Or at least, I don't know, statistically, I don't know which one, obviously, is, a, you know, I don't know which cases are more prevalent, but it's more and more you have cases where you have um, families um, who speak two different languages at home, you know, you need to com to use a third language to communicate because they don't speak each other's language, and they live in a in, in a country with, with you know that which doesn't have any of those three languages, which is basically my case, right? Portuguese, Andre speaks Romanian. We live in Singapore. Everyone speaks English here. Okay, we do actually speak the language. Um, you know, we speak English to one another, and we we live in a country where English is spoken. But, you know, I have a lot of parents coming um, to me and asking me really which language they should speak with the child. It's not so much I, I'm not sure if my child is going to be confused or if it's going to delay their, uh, you know, his or her language skills. It's not so much that anymore, although we still have it. But it's also um, I don't know what to do. So I speak, I don't know, I'm just going to give another example, for example, uh, well, I'm going to use my example. Imagine a, a parent comes to me and says, I speak Portuguese to my child, but my husband speaks Romanian. He doesn't speak Portuguese. When we're all at home, the language I speak to my child, you know, is it should I speak to my my my, my child in Portuguese or, or any other language or English? Or should I try to speak my husband's language? Or, you know, so you end up, you you end up in a case where, you know, it's it's more of a social linguistic type of thing. Yeah. Where parents are really not sure what's appropriate to do in a social situation you know and uh, and obviously there's always the case that the language that they actually use to communicate with one another might not be used entirely correctly so that's their language they might not be able to use it fluently 
you know, so if they ha if they choose to use that third language, which they use to communicate with one another, if they choose to use choose to use that language with the child, are they going to be able to provide, you know, a, a really good model or a, as as good as you know as, the, as their mother tongue? So it's it's very it's 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 quite fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds it sounds it, and in some ways similar to the to the issues we were having with bilingualism here in London, but but different as well. Yeah. Um, okay, I just want to finish up by asking you about your research project, because you mentioned you were you were here in London to go to, to the university and finish that all off. So so tell us about what you were researching and what you found. Well, so it, we wanted to uh, basically get a baseline of children's language skills in Tahamlets. So we assessed uh, and a number of children. We unfortunately, uh, well, unfortunately, we weren't able to get um, a big sample because we had a lot of DNAs, mm -hmm. which is common, <laughs> as you um, are very well aware. <laughs> so, unfortunately, um, that wasn't um, a very good thing. But we still got um, we still got a nice sample. And I mean, we anticipated that the language skills would would be would not be very good, so that they would be below um, national average or below um, what would be expected when compared to other boroughs. Um, that was actually the case. Uh, so we haven't really disseminated all the results, but um, initially, though, so the, the the what the results indicate is that um, there is a, definitely a high percentage of language difficulties across our hamlets um, and most specifically in both the girls and the bilingual population, not so much the boys population, which was a little bit of a surprise. Um, the, the One of the interesting things Joe, because, uh, was that we also assessed nonverbal skills um, but the bilingual population scored uh, in, very similarly to the monolingual population in terms of nonverbal skills. So they only um, they only scored lower in in typical language tasks. Uh, so, as I said, I think these results were expected due to the level of deprivation in the borough. Although we all expected to see the boys scoring lower than the girls, because our you know our case was were. We always had more boys than girls in our caseloads, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but there's quite a lot of um, recent research um, actually saying that um, it might have to do with the type of difficulty. It's not so much that boys are more affected than girls, but um, that boys might have more transient difficulties and girls might have more, you know, more, more permanent difficulties. So I guess we do have... We probably do have more boys because they just tend to be a little bit more delayed, but they, they catch up, catch up. It might be, it might be the case. I think the most important thing, though, uh, we need to take into consideration with the results is that, you know, this is, it, it's a bilingual population. And unfortunately, we don't have adequate, you know, you don't have adequate assessment tools for this population. So any results, they really need to be considered carefully, you know. I mean, it's still interesting. It is still interesting. Um, it might, it might, it might be, you know, them, there obviously might be other variables, um, in, and I'm sure that's the case. Uh, the the bilingual population probably scored lower as well because some of the minorities in Tar Hamlets are bilingual and they are the ones who are more deprived as well. So obviously we can't, um, you know, we we probably, you know, that that's exactly why they they scored lower. It's not so much because they are bilingual, but because they are deprived. So this is really tough to know.
exactly what it is. It was a very, you know, it was a very superficial, <laughs> but it would be, um, it, if we had a, a bigger sample, it would have been easier to get more accurate results. But um, yes, that was, that, that, that was the outcome. Okay. Oh, that sounds like a good first step. Um, well, I thank you very much for joining me, Fatima. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Find out more about the podcast series at therapyideas.org or subscribe via iTunes by searching for Therapy Ideas. For CPD opportunities in London, check out the Therapy Ideas website. Thank you.